Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome once again to the Vineyard. As we continue on in the study we're doing, uh, we're working through the New Testament, actually a chapter at a time, but we are right now in the book of Mark, and we'll be in Mark chapter 9 today. So uh, if you want to get ready, you can find Mark chapter 9 in your Bibles, or it's there in your notes, or you can listen to me read it in a few minutes. But let's kind of jump into uh, uh, what we've been doing, what we've been talking about, and how it all fits together. Now, um, the book of Mark was written, uh, as all, were all the Gospels, to a select group. Um, and, and so each one has a little different take. Mark was written primarily to the Romans. And because the Romans were very much impressed with power and authority, um, Mark hits those points. And he started the Gospel right off with the power ministry of Jesus. And he's focused less on the the teaching of Jesus and, and Matthew did, but, um, but we've been seeing the sort of picture as it unfolds um, in this process. Now, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are considered the synoptic Gospels. I don't know why you'd ever need to know that, but, but if it ever comes up, they're considered uh, the synoptic Gospels, different than John. And Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke are, are similar in a lot of ways where, where John has a different uh, take on it altogether. And so we'll study that as we go. Um, and um, no one's sure who wrote first, although the church history kind of says, well, it goes back and forth. Some of them say Matthew wrote first, others say that Mark wrote first. Um, but, but Matthew writes a, a gospel based on his experience and what he was. Mark is sort of recording for uh, Peter, and Luke is recording for Paul. And, and, um, and so that's where this information is coming from. Okay. Um, and, and so the, it looks like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, you know, they, they, have, they tell a lot of the same stories in the same places from the same, not exact same perspective, but from a similar perspective where John has a different perspective on it at all. You know, John is where we see Jesus saying all the I am's, and we don't see any of that in the Synoptic Gospels. And so there's, there's some differences along the way. But um, even though Mark had a different target audience, we've seen the same conflict that, that we saw in Matthew and that we'll see in the other Gospels. Jesus came to um, introduce the kingdom to people. Uh, they had lost sight of the kind of relationship that God wanted to have. Jesus bursts into the scene and tells people that God loves them and wants to have a relationship with them, and, and, and yet they're, they're so stuck in their rules and their rituals that we see them reject Jesus. And even though they see and, and watch the work of God in their midst, because he didn't come in the package they want, he's rejected. And, um, and so we see him in this conflict with the Pharisees. We saw it in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you, we see it again in Mark. We see the, the Pharisees already plotting to kill Jesus and, and continually trying to trap him. And they can't do it. And Mark has sort of been bringing us through this journey of faith and, and uh, telling us that it, it, there's one thing to believe, it's another to have faith, and that um, while we've seen these crowds um, come to see the miracles um, and, and, and at some level believe that Jesus is doing them, when, when they're asked who he is, um, most of them keep re- sort of referring to him as a great prophet, but not as the Christ. And what we're going to see uh, and what we saw last week is that in that, um, that question arose... Uh, who do you say that I am? And and, uh, and 
And when Jesus asked them the question, but what about you? You know, what are, who do they say I am? What about you? Who do you say that I am? When the um, confirmation by the disciples is made, in all three of the synoptic gospels, we are the Christ, there's a, there's a change in the pattern of what we see Jesus' ministry. And up until that question is asked, he's teaching the crowds. And after that question is asked, his teaching focuses on the disciples. And the, the point of view of his teaching teaches, because all of a sudden, in every one of those instances, he begins teaching his disciples that he has to die and be resurrected. And this is hard for the disciples to get a hold of, because it's so different than their paradigm. And yet, they can even begin to receive it because they know that Jesus is the Christ. See? And so, so there's, that's what has to happen. It wouldn't have been enough just for them to believe they have to have faith. And there's, we've talked about those differences. I said that you know, Herod believed in the, that John the Baptist was a, a, a holy man and yet had him put to death anyway uh, because you know, he would rather look good in front of his guests than in front of God. See, see he, he, he believed, but he didn't have faith. And there's a big difference. And these crowds believe in some measure that Jesus is doing something from God, and yet they can't put their faith in Christ. And unless you put your faith in Christ, the teachings of Christ really don't impact you um, the way that they should. And, and we have a lot of people today, though, that, that if you ask them about Jesus, what they say is, well, he was a great teacher, or he was a prophet. But if he's not the Christ, and by the Christ I mean the, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior, if you don't have a personal relationship with him, then, then his teachings won't really impact your life. They might be great teachings, but they really won't sink in. They really won't change you. Without faith, they won't transform you. And what we're going to start talking about in the next couple of chapters is this transformation that, that Jesus has for his disciples. Uh, and, and that uh, it's, it all points to us. See, what's supposed to happen is we come to God in relationship, in faith in Christ, we're transformed. There's something that's changed in us. And it's because we've gone from just a belief that, that, that there is a God to not only is there a God, in Christ He came and made a way for us to have relationship restored, not only now but forever, and that our faith needs to be placed in Him. And at that point, everything begins to change because the, the, the teachings then have a different impact in your life. And they go from just being, well, that sounds good, to this is life. This is, this is where life has always been. And I can only found it in the Scripture. So that's what's happening now. And in Mark 9 and 10, what we see in these two chapters is um, of, the, of the six times in the book of Mark where Jesus is called teacher by his disciples, five of those instances happen in 9 and 10 because his focus has changed. And now he's, he's really kind of concentrating on the disciples. And he's presenting them this message. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be resurrected. And, and no, they, they, have no, they can't figure it out, and they, they, don't really, they, they can't grab it, grasp it, so they, they don't think that's what's going to happen. They're still convinced that he's going to take over and become a political head for Israel and be like the king that, that King David was. And so that's the dynamic that we're dealing with here in the process. So let's, uh, let's read Mark chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1, there's 50 verses in Mark chapter 9. So, I'll need a drink of water. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 and following. 
And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Then he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. I just like, I get a kick out of that. Because, I mean, there's... Try and imagine what what, what Peter's witnessing, and you know Peter's just not a sit there and be quiet kind of guy. So he's like, "Should we whip together a couple of houses for you? What? Hey, he's a, he's got to do some action." He's like, and so so, and it says because he was frightened. You know how sometimes you say something stupid when you're frightened. It was just it was just like, well, Peter, it's it's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. I think they'll work that out for themselves. <laughs> But anyway, I digress. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Do you see that they got, they got no clue? And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? I get another kick out of this. And I'm sorry I'm digressing here. But, but um, this amazing thing happens before them. And, and what they want to do is get back and have a theological discussion. And, and so often that's what happens. We try and reduce the movement of God into a theological discussion. And the moment we do, we lose faith and we lose the power of what happens. And, and if I could say this, and I'll get back to it again, the, the, the simple message of faith in this particular passage of how to live in faith in Christ is, is spoken by God from a cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. That is the best advice you will ever receive about anything. If, if you could follow that advice. I mean, that's it. This is my son. Listen to him. That's good advice, right? But, but the disciples, I mean, get that they're so freaked out. Now they want to have a theological discussion. Anyway, that's where we go all the time, and we've got to try not to do that. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher... I brought you my son who was possessed by spirit and has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. 
How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can only can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. See the shift? He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can anyone make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Okay, so quite a bit of stuff in there. Let's just uh, sort of focus on a couple of things tonight. Um, I told you that we we have this, this shift that's taken place. And so, because basically the crowds have sort of come along and and they like to be uh, around to see what God's doing, and yet they won't accept Christ as the one whom God sent. Uh, he begins to change the focus of the ministry. We saw this in Matthew as well. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus stops ministering to people. He doesn't. But um, 
where before it's more or less backing up what he's saying, now he's ministering out of his compassion more than anything else. And when he sees crowds, you'll see it said, oh, because of his compassion now he goes and he, he moves among the crowds. But his, his focus has changed. Because primarily the crowds, while they've been coming to him, they've, they've, they haven't and they won't accept him for who he is. And they are quickly swayed. They, they don't grab a hold of it in faith uh, of who he is like the disciples have. But even the disciples are struggling. So, so make sure you see the, the, they, they get it. And yet they don't get it. They, they believe and they have faith, but it's not, they don't trust him yet like they're going to. And they're trying to change their entire paradigm um, because everything is up. Jesus has up, turned everything upside down. And I, I, I don't know how to, uh, I want to make sure you see that, that, that you're challenged at times in your life to completely shift your paradigm and it's never easy. And by that I mean to change the way you think about things. And suddenly you'll be presented with something that you know is true but it goes so differently against everything else that you believe that it, it, even though it's true and you know it to be true, it takes a little while for it to work into all the places in your life. And so that's what's happening now with this message. They, 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 they believe that he is the Christ, but this message is so hard for them to, to grasp that, that they even argue with him. You saw Peter argue with him and say, no, Lord, that can't be how it's going to work. And, and he goes, you know, now you're not talking from God. That's the enemy. So they're, they're having to make these changes in their lives. But the pivotal confession is, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. They get it. They know that. And that's what sets them apart then from everyone else. And so the focus of the ministry begins to change in the process. And, and uh, as I said, without this faith in Christ, there'll be no real transformation in our lives. And, uh, and this transformation process happens. Now, that first story in Mark chapter 9, I think, is really interesting in, in the first uh, 13 verses. And um, be, because there's an, there's an interesting verse that, that starts off the chapter where he says, I, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. And that's, a, that's, a, that's had a lot of questions asked about that particular verse. But he goes on and says what, what happens is the very next verse. Six days later, Peter, John, and James... Go with Jesus up a mountain, and the transfiguration happens. And it's a picture of the coming of the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus is transfigured before them. And so when Jesus said, some of the people standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power, James, John, and Peter got to see it. There some of them standing there. And they get to see this, this, this Jesus being transfigured and being whiter than any, any his clothes then anyone could bleach them. And, and, and so this, there's this amazing thing happens, and it's, it's, it's the glory. It, Jesus, is, Jesus is seen in the glory that everyone will see him when he comes back. See, that's how they got to see Jesus, how we're all going to see Jesus when he comes back, in his glory. And, and so that's the kingdom of God in power, and they get to witness it. And it freaks them out. And then throw in, for good measure, Elijah and Moses showing up. That's pretty significant. And it's not like the ghost of Elijah and Moses. It's Elijah and Moses. And they have a little confab with Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of I trying to think about. Because, you know, I don't even know Peter where, where he finds words other than I said. He doesn't know how to be quiet. And, and uh, 
Because um, you see him always saying stuff when he shouldn't. He speaks inappropriately all the time. Um, and there's this, there's this event that takes place. And, and Jesus is seen by them in his glory, the glory that we'll see after he endures the cross. And, and, and see, there's so many pictures now of, of what happens because, see, they get a picture of what it looks like to see how Jesus is going to look after the cross. But, but do you remember, he's, he's told his guys now that to follow him, they're going to have to take up their own cross. And we, we're told the same thing. And there are times when it's difficult. You know that. But what we know is that, that on the other side of that is the glory of God. And so all these things begin to connect. He's trying to, these guys have to get this part of the deal. And so they witness the coming of the, of the kingdom of God in power in the transfiguration of Jesus. And that voice, again, I, I want to go back to it. Uh, the clouds envelop this whole situation and a voice from heaven the voice of God says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And again, I tell you, that's, that's, that's how we live in faith. If, if you were to look for a definition of what a, a life of faith looks like, God gives it to you right there. This is my son. I love him. You listen to him. And we do. And what does that call us to? It calls us to a life of obedience. It calls us of of a, a, a life of, uh, that Jesus modeled for us, life and ministry of, of purpose and, and servanthood. It's not all about us. And see, that's what he begins to teach his guys next. Because now, see, now God has come and said, okay, I want you to quit this, this stuff that you're doing about what, what your paradigm is and why you think, you know, how this is all supposed to work out. You need to make sure you're listening to my son, whom I love, because he's going to tell you how to live a life of faith. And he begins to teach them this whole process. And so all of this is just setting up this ground for them to learn. And then they come down from this experience, and I said to you along the way, I think it's funny, because they, they don't know how to just sit there in faith. They want to have, which is what so many, we do this all the time. We, we just want to have theological discussions rather than live lives of faith. And it gets all twisted up and, and messed up in the theology of it all. And, and that was the discussion on the way down. But they come down the mountain, and there's an argument going on with a crowd and the rest of the disciples, right? He only took three of them up there. So he's got nine that are left behind. And there's this big discussion happening because um, a, a man has come. And remember, by now, by this point, Jesus has been sending the disciples out to do ministry. They've been doing ministry. They've been doing the things that Jesus modeled. They've been out there and doing it. But here comes this... this uh, this uh, father with a son, and the son is uh, possessed by a spirit, and the disciples have prayed for him, and they can't, they're not making any headway. And everything has got everything sort of into a big ruckus. And, and, and Jesus comes in and finds out what's going on. And, and see, the story at this point, again, it's about faith, but I also think it's about the importance of prayer and depending on God and in this life of God. And, and there's, there's clues that we get about the story. Um, See, the, the disciples don't have any success in, in praying in this situation. And, and Jesus comes in and says, Oh, unbelieving generation, that's part of it with faith. And he, and he says to the Father, you know, and the Father says to him, If you can, and Jesus stops him there, If I can. 
See, and, and the guy says, well, I believe, but I, help me in my unbelief. And Jesus does, so it's a reasonable way to come. But you see a difference there of the way that the, remember the Syrophoenician woman when she came with an issue? I know you can. You can do this. Will you do it? Uh, when, when we saw the, the uh, it was one of the blind guys in the earlier chapters. He, he, oh, no, the leper. If you're willing. It wasn't if you can, it's if you're willing. And, and it demonstrated Jesus and compassion. There's a different level of faith there that's displayed in this one because now this guy's like, well, if you can. And Jesus is like, if I can? And, and obviously he can. And the, the question is, haven't you seen all the rest of the miracles? I mean, there shouldn't be a question of if still. See, there's this whole belief in faith thing. And so he, he prays for him and he's set free. And the disciples ask him, why couldn't we do it? Now, here's my thought on this process because a lot of people have a lot of different thoughts and they use this passage to, to try and do a lot of different things. In, in the next few verses down in the 30, 32, 33, 34, somewhere in there, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And I think what's happened is they've lost track of the source, see? They've gotten independent because they went out and they had some success in ministry and, and it's, it's impacted them in a way that they think it's about them, not about God. And instead of being completely dependent on God, they've, they've gotten to a spot now where they think they can actually argue about which one of them is the greatest. Like, who's the best at this stuff? And, and if you see that tension, that makes sense when Jesus comes in and says, some of this can only happen by prayer. See, prayer is a picture of dependence on God. To, to, see, prayer is the, the biggest significant symbol of a life that's dependent on God. If you're not praying, you're really not all that dependent on God because it, it's expressed in prayer. That's why prayer is so important because prayer reminds us that we need God. When we, when we get away from praying, we're sort of just coasting. And when we're coasting, we're not going to see a lot of significant stuff happen because we're coasting and we're coasting in our own power. And I don't know about you, but my own power can't do anything. Um, I, and I, I, you know, I would tell you honestly, I prayed for people in my own power. I've never had any success. <laughs> it's been real flat. It's never worked. But independence on God's power, that's a different story. Something different happens. And so the, all these things, see, and the disciples are trying to grab this deal. They're trying to get a hold of it. And, and we can't do things in our own strength. We have to remember that. And that's this argument going around. And, and Jesus takes that story and, and, uh, and he brings a little child in. He says, listen, here's what you've got to get. Now, this is a big shift in, in their thinking. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to serve. It's not been modeled to them at all. The, the religious leaders that they have seen their entire lives weren't servants. They were there to be served. And Jesus, the Christ, they know who he is, God says, no, no, they got it backwards. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you'll be a servant of all. And again, it's, it's and because and, we get it. See, we, we don't naturally move to service. Naturally, you would much rather be served than serve. And, and it happens in all sorts of areas. And we, it's, a, it's something we all have to look at. But in many situations... We come into it, and, and we don't look to serve. We look to be served. Now, we, we have to teach ourselves by the Spirit of God and be obedient to realize that we're supposed to serve. 
and, and, and then people go, well, I'll get taken advantage of. So, <laughs> you serve because God's told you to. That's life. That's how life you find in the sermon. In the kingdom, it's a life of service. And in the process, other people come and minister to you, and it, it all begins to work out. But see, it's not natural. We, we have a natural tendency to not serve. And so it's, it's something that, and so did these guys. We're just like them in so many ways. And so Jesus had to begin to turn that upside down. You want to be great in the kingdom? It, it, greatness in the kingdom is not found by the, the, the most elevated people. It's the, the servants. And then John says, well, we saw a guy who was out doing some ministry and he wasn't one of us. And we told him to knock it off. And now this guy's having success in the name of Jesus. And they, they said, no, you've got to stop because you ain't one of us. And Jesus said, what, what's wrong with you? If, if they're not against us, they're for us. Again, look, that particular issue has divided the church into so many pieces today. Well, they're not like us. They don't do it like us, so... We don't have it all figured out. Who would we judge them? If they love Jesus. But that's the core issue. It has to be... They have to love... I mean, there's some... They have to love Jesus. They have to believe that He is who He said He is and that... Because that's what this whole book is about, right? I mean, that's what we're reading this chapter about. It's not some sort of, uh, you know... Uh, it's, it's that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's come, that He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's salvation. He's our Savior. And, and that He came miraculously... And he lived a, a perfect sinless life and he went to the cross on our behalf and he died and he gave his life and his perfect sinless life was enough to cover and pay for our sin so that our faith in him is enough for us to have eternal life. Look, those are basics we don't swerve away from. But, but, but if, if they're there, then, you know, if they sing differently than we do and dress differently than we do, of course, everybody does that. Um, <laughs> We bless them. We don't judge them. We don't think that we got it more figured out than they do. We bless them. That's, that's the point. And that's, that, that little statement is huge. But understand, it's a tendency. Well, they don't do it the way we do, so we just won't have anything to do with it. And then those last verses, people always get weirded out by these last verses. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Isn't that a weird verse? If your, if your feet, cut one off. If your eye, pluck it out. I'm glad most of us don't follow that advice because we'd all be like this. <laughs> we'd be a bunch of pirate-looking people. Hey. <laughs> what was your problem? You don't want to know. But why is it so graphic? I'll tell you why it's so graphic. Because sin is so terrible. And we can never take it lightly. You can never take sin lightly. You can never, you can never um, begin to think that because now we have a way of salvation that, that sin is anything less than terrible. It's so terrible that Jesus had to endure incredible pain, humiliation, and suffering in order to take care of it. That there was no way other than for God to, to come and to do what he did for us. Because sin is that terrible and it, and it blocks us from the presence of God apart from Christ. 
And, and the, the, the statement that Jesus is making is, look, you need to know that this is no little deal, that your sin has, has separated you from a holy God. And no, no matter what works you try and do to make it better, no matter what rituals you try and make to get it right, nothing's going to work because sin is that terrible. And it would be better for you if it was possible to, to somehow to get you to stop because there's no other way to, to, to... You need to know it's that significantly terrible. And that's the point of those comments. And, and our response isn't that we start cutting things out. It's that we realize our need for a Savior. And we understand the gift that we've been given and we never take sin lightly, ever. Sin is terrible, horrible. All of us have sinned. But, but we never take it lightly. And then, you know, don't go into the guilt thing. We've got a Savior. But, but just, just so you get, so we don't ever, well, it's just a little sin. It's, it's horrible. Sin is terrible. And all of us are infected by it and have, have you know, spent it in our life. And so, ultimately, that chapter then, um, he's teaching his disciples to follow him. They need to live a life of service and a life of prayer. And that they're to encourage and build people up, not tear them down. That's sort of the, the gist of Mark chapter 9 in 25 minutes all right okay we're done here if you're watching my video thanks for watching i'll pray for you up in williston or uh, if you need prayer um if you're watching on the internet or something just contact us you can write us email us we pray for you but thanks for watching the video and uh we're going to close it down here with prayer requests so if you have prayer requests please pass them up to me and i will pray for them before we go